0: Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics, episode 16, War.
1: There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Yanks go marching in. I want to be their boy, spread some joy when they take old Berlin. There'll be a hot time in the town of Berlin When the Brooklyn boys begin To take the joint apart And tear it down when they take old Berlin they're going to start a row and show them how we paint the town back in Kokomo. They're going to take a hike through Hitler's Reich and change that high
0: to what you know, Joe. There'll be a hot. Hello and welcome to episode 16 in the podcast miniseries Pop Culture Affidavit Presents 80 Years of DC Comics, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. The purpose of this podcast miniseries is to highlight comic book genres DC Comics has published that go beyond their mainstream superhero titles, as well as stories that are not on your typical top 10 lists. I have three episodes to go in this series, and after winding my way through science fiction, horror, fantasy, and Christmas stories, I've arrived at the first of my two remaining non-superhero genres, and that is war comics. I've not only got two war stories to discuss, but I also have a special guest to discuss them along with me. He's a first time guest to the show, but not new to the world of podcasting, as he's the host of Earth Destruction Directive, which you can find over at the Two True Freaks Network, and he's one of the go-to people when it comes to war comics. Please welcome Luke Jacanetti to the show.
2: How are you doing? Hey, Tom. I'm doing great. Thank you for thank you very much for having me on. Uh, Uh, I I knew at some point when you started this, uh, this series that you'd have to get to war comics. And I was very excited that you would be talking about some DC war comics. And then you reached out to me and said, Hey, would you like to talk about DC war comics? So I, I couldn't pass up that opportunity. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Hey, no problem. I knew knew that you were, you were big to them and, and I know you, you and I have exchanged emails here and there over, um, over in country, which, Mm -hmm. uh, anybody who's listening to this, if you're not familiar with it's my show covering a Marvel war comic, uh, the nom, but, but yeah, no, you're the first person I thought of because, um, this is not a big, uh, this is a, this is one of those big blind spots for me where I knew for years about Sergeant rock and especially Sergeant rock and some of the other war comics DC produced, but really never picked any of them up. Um, how did you get interested? In-
2: um, it, it's kind of a, a circuitous route for me because my first exposure to, to war comics and DC war comics in general was uh, as a a little kid, my family and I, we were on a vacation in um, the train country in Pennsylvania. We did a whole train vacation. My dad's big into railroad and model railroad and stuff like that. And we ended up at this antique shop and they had a, a pile of comics. And my brother ended up getting two issues of GI combat featuring the haunted tank. And one of them, was actually The Haunted Tank um, crossing over with The War That Time Forgot. It had uh, fighting a, uh, a big Tyrannosaurus on the cover. Hmm. And so the, so I was aware of books like G.I. Combat and stuff, and I became aware of Sergeant Rock um, once I started getting into the DC universe proper, kind of in the early 90s. But I never really, I never really gave war comics much thought. I mean, I had, I had read those issues of G.I. Combat and stuff like that, but honestly, it wasn't really until... DC started doing a lot of their uh, black and white reprints that I started not only learning more about these war books, but becoming a real big fan of them because in that initial, I think it was either the, uh, in the initial wave of the, uh, showcase presents volumes, we had the haunted tank. Uh-huh. And then right in the second wave, we got the unknown soldier. And from there we started getting Sergeant rock, the losers, black Hawks. We got, um, weird war tales, um, are men of war. We got a lot of these different books that were coming out. And so it, I, I think my eyes were open to the, the absolute breadth of the field of all the different types of war books that DC published. And so, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. So when something piques my interest, I start doing my research. <laughs> and so I kind of dove headlong into those. And I've read so many war comics over the last 10 years based off of, just reading just getting into those reprints and going from there that uh, it's really become a a, a big a big part of my comic book collecting over the last decade as well as a lot of my uh, reading and interest has started going in that direction and 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 you know how it is with comics once you find something that you like you tend to find the stuff that's similar to it yeah and and then you start it just gets it just you know snowballs and snowballs to the point that you know, uh it's 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 a big thing. I've I've got more books from a bunch of different publishers wow. all scattered about right now in my <laughs> bonus room with all my comics.
0: So. I uh I've seen a number of those showcases and they there was on like in like discount um discount bins and things like that, uh where and I always make kind of a mental note to pick them up because the showcase presents this is a slight tangent, but the showcase presents volumes that always did interest me, the ones that were not as mainstream hero books. Like um, I got, I bought the ghosts one on a, a, for five bucks, you know, cause I was like, Hey, horror comics from the seventies for $5 and, and uh, stuff like that. So um, I, I'm, I keep thinking after reading what we read today and a couple other ones that, that I've picked up here and there, I think I might seek those out when I get the chance because they do sound like really, really like some really good stuff. Do you find that um, I found with at least the romance comics you can't read so many of them at all at once because they are very much the same story. Do you find that with the war comics? Do you, do you, have you found that there tends to be a, a little bit more variety in the types of stories that are told?
2: I think it varies from um, property to property and character to character. Hmm. The Sergeant Rock stories uh, I find tend to be very um, varied because they're kind of like we're going to see with our story later They're they're small stories mm-hmm. you know there's not anything anything big where and, and another example like the unknown soldier the soldier is he's he's one dude he's an operative so he goes from theater to theater to theater so one one issue he might be in you know behind uh behind the lines in occupied france Hooking up with the resistance to fight the Vichy French, mm-hmm. and then the next issue he might be in the Pacific theater, and then after that he might be undercover in Berlin. So, uh, you know, so, so I, the soldier is another one where it's uh, it, there's a lot of variation. I, I do find that sometimes with uh, books like *The Haunted Tank* because they're they're always tank stories. Uh-huh. It's always a story about okay Jeb and the crew are going to fight another tank battle, and they've got to escort this this group of infantry or or stuff like that yeah um you know and and blackhawk's kind of the same way it's always a dogfight of some kind you know but but those books you know haunted tank and uh, blackhawk their advantage is um they've got more character than books like sergeant rock rock was really about regular joes Mm -hmm. whereas haunted tank had you know, Jeb and the Colonel and and we got to know his crew and the Blackhawks had all the flyers and we got to know them. They were characters. Mm -hmm. So it does kind of strike a a balance in there. Uh, About the one that I would say is uh, specifically as far as a showcase presents volume that you may not want to read all in one sitting showcase presents the war that time forgot is absolutely bananas, (laughs) but it is bananas week in week out issue after issue. It is just crazy. So what I like to, that one's like my palate cleanser. Like if I've read some really serious comics, I go read an issue, of weird war to, of uh, the war that time forgot. Uh-huh. And it's like my, it's, it's like a PT boat going down a river filled with giant, with dinosaurs. It's like, and my brain is cleansed.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, to get us a little bit of the history of war at DC. Um, I, I, I looked through the Les Daniels book, sixty. Uh, 60 Years of the World's Greatest Comics, from which came out about 1995 or so, and just kind of dug around a little bit. And when we think the war that mostly gets associated with war comics, especially DC War Comics, is World War II. Um, I'd say by and large, it's probably a, a good generalization to make. Most of what I saw was World War II, although... For the most part, you have to look to like ne- the early 1950s for the start of what we would refer to as the war genre. There were, um, when we think about World War II in comic books and we think of the comics that were coming out during the Second World War, most of them were superhero books, and there were a lot of superheroes fighting Nazis on covers. Um, there was the occasional call it what it is propaganda piece of um I, I read one in uh in a Batman Chronicles volume where he and Robin there's like a fantasy story of what if the Nazis take over and they're all of a sudden like, you know, almost like covertly helping with the resistance against the Nazis, or there's stories where there's like, you know, the latest criminals in the underworld are Nazi spies and that sort of stuff. Um but you did have books like Boy Commandos, which was and uh, in, started in 1942, and there were a few others that were directly related to war comics. But the ones that we mostly associate with DC's line that began in about 1952 and lasted to varying degrees up until about the late 80s. Yeah,
2: um,
0: you've got Our Army at War, which mm-hmm. I believe is what became Sergeant Rock. Yes, Star Spangled War Stories. Um, All-American Men of War, and then G.I. Combat, I think, comes along a little bit later.
2: Yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about DC, like you said, their, their first quote-unquote true war book was mm-hmm. Our Army at War, which debuted in uh, June of 1952. Mm-hmm. That same month, Star-Spangled War Stories debuted, taking over the numbering from Star-Spangled Comics. Yeah. And then the next month was when All-American Western became All-American Men of War. And, uh, and these were all cover dated August 1952. So clearly, uh, from a cover date standpoint, that's kind of the line of demarcation for D.C. Later that, uh, later that year, about a couple in August of 52, over at Quality, that's when G.I. Combat started. Mm-hmm. G.I. Combat and Blackhawk started over at Quality. But by, fift- by 1957, after D.C. bought Quality, those were two of the books that ported over directly, were Blackhawk and G.I. Combat. They didn't even change their numbering. Um, about the only books really that predate them that are, are really part of the war genre in all American comics, there was a character called Hop Harrigan and Hop Harrigan was, uh, he was an aviator. And so it was a lot of his early stories were like the aviating, the aviation hero type stories. Well, eventually he became a member of the U S army air Corps and served in world war II. So there was some, you know, early type of a, you know, um, fighter pilot-type stories uh, with Hop Harrigan. Similarly, like I said, Black Hawk debuted in the summer of 1941, and that was a straight, you know, uh, you know, wings-across-the-world-type uh, war book from the very beginning. Uh, reading some of those Golden Age war books can be pretty off-putting for modern mm-hmm. audiences. Uh, Black Hawk springs to mind readily just because of their depiction of the Japanese. Yeah, they're uh, very much yeah. of their time. Yeah, they really are, especially those early ones. Once you start getting into the books in the 50s, I think you start seeing the stories that we more closely associate with the DC style of war comics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what the, the one we're going to, the, the Sergeant Rock story we've got is, I think, a, a great example of that. Yeah. And uh, the other thing about DC is that they had all these anthology books, but almost all the anthologies had a lead. And sometimes the leads would rotate. Sometimes they'd run for a while and then they'd get spelled out and another lead would come in. Yeah. So very quickly, you had a stable of these war characters that were cover stars, but they never had more than like, you know, 16, 17 pages. And then they'd have a backup in the back to keep the anthology going. Mm -hmm. So you'd have maybe 16 pages of Sergeant Rock and Easy Company, and then you'd have a uh, six or eight pager of just a one off. War Story. Hmm. So, I mean, the and the general lineup, it was, you know, Sergeant Rock and Easy Company, There was in Our Army at War. Uh, Unknown Soldier was in Star Spangled War Stories. Enemy Ace was also in Star Spangled. Uh, Jeb Stewart and the Haunted Tank eventually became kind of the feature in GI Combat. Uh, Blackhawks had their own magazine. Um, the Losers were in Our Fighting Forces, and the Losers are kind of an interesting concept if you're only familiar with the modern Vertigo version of the Losers. The Losers were actually four guys that, uh, th- they, there were three features. It was Gunner and Sarge, who were two Marines, mm-hmm. Johnny Ace, Native American Air Force pilot, and Captain Storm, the, uh, the, the uh, destroyer captain. And all of them had their own features, and all their features got canceled, so they got rolled into one. Huh. And the Losers are kind of like the prototypical, they're like the A-team before the A-team. Huh. they're almost like the dirty dozen they get sent to on on some you know some on, you know suicide mission in the middle of nowhere and, you know and they guess just, just get dumped off cuz well they're they're a bunch of losers you yeah. know i think uh, most modern readers probably only know the losers from um uh, darwin cook's new frontier the first chapter
0: or you know? um or crisis on infinite earths cuz yeah that's cuz they, was... they they had um cuz they wolfman and perez kill them off mm-hmm. in the, like by the antimatter cloud in in a really really well done sequence and there was they had a special to kind of go along around that time it was about 1985 or so and it was it was i don't think it the special itself had anything actually to do with crisis um i owned it at one point it was built because it was built as a crisis crossover um, and i'm sure mike and scott will get around to it when they pick up uh, Crisis and Infinite Earths again, over Tales of the JSA, but yeah, that was that was the other place that I remember the losers from was was yeah. that, and I think that was the first time I ever read anything featuring Sergeant Rock mm-hmm. as well. Um, Enemy Ace is an interesting one because I believe he's a World War One pilot. Yes, which is not something which is I mean I think World War One, and I think you know Snoopy and the Red Baron, but mm-hmm. but that sort of. Um, that sort of fighting. And, um, I always remember there's a Batman story. It doesn't feature enemy ace, but it was, it was a Batman story. Was it death haunts the skies? It's in the greatest Batman stories ever told. And it was almost like, it was almost like whoever was writing it. And I don't remember who was writing. it It might've been, it might've been Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams doing the artwork, but it was almost like they wanted to team him up with enemy ace and they didn't have any other way to do it, so they just kind of wrote this story in because it almost looks like a Batman enemy Ace team up.
2: I, yes, I, I also have that greatest Batman stories ever told, and if yeah. I remember correctly, isn't there a, a follow up story to that that is also included in that volume? I think so. so. There's, there's two stories of Batman fighting a world flying a World War One biplane. Yeah, yeah, I it think so. This seems a bit suspect. The the, I the 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 reason with I think the main reason why Enemy Ace was done in World War One. Was it allowed them to tell stories from the point of view of the opposition mm-hmm. without getting into um the 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 Nazi idealism, you know? yeah that... That because, <laughs> yeah because Hans van Hammer, the enemy ace I mean he was an honorable guy. Mm-hmm. he was a he was an honorable pilot that was fighting for his country, yeah, and he fought fairly and he fought bravely, and he treated his enemies with respect. So it gave them an uh, you know an opportunity to to kind of, Turn it, turn it around, and look at it from the other perspective. Yeah,
0: it just to to get, I guess, talk history a little bit. The differences between the origin of World War One and the origin of World War Two, even though the two wars are linked because you don't have the second without the first, there's there is a way to to look at the First World War and see how you know most of the people fighting on all sides were fighting in a way of ideal, like the the, the grunts and the average people were fighting in a, with a sense of honor and with a sense of pride in their country, and it's mm-hmm. all this political gamesmanship that is basically the cause of the war. And they are you can really look a lot of like a lot of those people are you know if you want to take it cynically pawns in a very large chess game that's been going on through Europe for decades. It's hard to be sympathetic toward Nazis. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I can't, I've never,
2: <laughs> you know, like... Well, it, it's well, it, what's funny is that in the mid-70s, DC actually did a war comic from the point of view of the Germans in World War II.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah,
2: they, they did a book called Blitzkrieg, and Blitzkrieg lasted all of... Wait for it. Five issues before it ended. This was right. This is right around the time of the DC explosion. I'm not sure if it was right before or right uh, during or what. But it it so it it portrayed the war on the German side, and it was brutally unsympathetic because mm. it not only showed the Nazis as cruel and you know heartless, but then it showed the plight of the average German citizen. Mm-hmm. Of the oppressed citizens. I mean, you know, it's it's a, a very popular line from the first, from the uh, Captain America, the First Avenger. It's the first country the Nazis conquered was Germany.
0: Yeah, and i so, and that's one of the few areas where you are sympathetic to people in Germany because I've and I've read a few things from the point of view of your average German citizen, where there were people who lived in fear, you know, of what they were you know of their of their own government and things like that it's uh yeah but yeah you're right it's and, and now now that you mentioned blitzkrieg i've probably seen cover the covers flipping through um mike's amazing world of comics as i'm sure yeah. we all do <laughs> we're <laughs> bored just start looking at stuff from random years uh yeah we have two stories. Uh, the two stories we have, the first one we're going to do is a Sergeant rock story. Cause I didn't think you could do a DC comics war comic episode without doing Sergeant rock. And, um, I picked, uh, I picked one that is by probably the two most well-known talents for war comics, especially rock. And that's, um, Bob Kaniger and Joe Kubert, um, who had a very, who are, I mean, Kubert himself is, um, you know, I know with the exception of, um, Hawkman, I think he's probably most famous for the war comics. Cause I know he did, I know he did a lot of Hawkman and I know you're a big Hawkman yeah. guy. Mm-hmm. So correct me if I'm
2: wrong. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing with Kubert. I mean, Kubert touched on so many different things between yeah. his, yeah. his war books, his, uh, superhero books, his, like pulp fantasy caveman mm. type books so yeah but generally when i think of Kubert, i think of hawkman and then and then war
1: mm-hmm.
2: not just his uh work inside but he did so many war covers for oh, yeah. DC oh yeah over the years that it, it it almost became a little disappointing when he didn't do the cover
1: mm-hmm.
2: so uh yeah and, and bob Caniger. i mean he again just a guy that that did so much work in that genre. At one point, he was pretty much overseeing all eight of hmm. DC's war books at one time. Whether he was writing the lead story or not, uh, kind of varied month to month, but you know, him and Joe Orlando basically ran that little uh, fiefdom, if you will, inside of DC, and that's one of the reasons, I think, why the books consistently stayed um, kind of... they They were consistent in the tone and the nature of their stories. They didn't get they did some crazy stuff like with dinosaurs and then eventually we got, you know, G.I. Robot and stuff like yeah. that. But generally speaking, the books kind of stayed true to themselves. They didn't kind of chase uh, fads or, you know, really go too far afield from being uh, stories about, you know, uh, the the soldiers fighting the war rather than, you know, grand military action,
0: you know. Yeah. Yeah. And Rock and, himself was uh, creator credits go to just having looked at his first, um appearance and stuff is is Kaniger and Bob haney um, who is well known for a lot of other different things especially uh, in the 1960s and in the 70s and actually the artists originally credited to him were Ross Andrew uh, and mike esposito but Kubert Kubert mm-hmm. definitely is the is the person you must associate with him we're looking at um a Kaniger Kubert story from our army at war number eighty seven uh, this was from october of nineteen fifty nine it's called calling easy company um i'm getting it from a book that i've used quite a bit for this mini series which is the greatest 1950s stories ever told which was published back in the uh early 1990s and you can actually get for i got it for under 10 bucks on ebay so you can still hmm. there are a few copies um around there if you want to get it in in paperback um you can get it on the cheap I believe you're getting it from the first Sgt. Rock Showcase presents. Yeah, volume. Showcase.
2: that's right. Showcase presents Sgt. Rock Volume 1, which, when did this come out? I want to say this was um, 2007. So this one's been out there for a while. Okay. But uh, the as you said, the war ones, with the exception, I think it's Sgt. Rock Volume 3 for some reason is one of those ones that's out of print. Mm-hmm. But most of them you can find easily enough, including uh, Volume 1. Okay,
0: cool. This is um, stuff like this, by the way, is a arg- is a great argument for DC putting together something so- similar to Marvel Unlimited, because they have such a wide range of stuff that I want
2: to. Oh read. my gosh, yes.
0: Because <laughs> I don't I mean think...
2: just, just reading. I mean just just you doing this show and talking about all the different genre books they mm-hmm. put out. I mean, especially compared to Marvel, the just the like I said, the the sheer just number of genre books in yeah. each genre. <laughs> you could you could get lost in that forever. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I know I keep going back to the fifties with a lot of them, but I always have to remind myself that the fifties up until the beginning of the Silver Age, it's what the company survived on because superheroes, with the exception of, you know, Superman Batman and Wonder Woman, they weren't you know, the, the comics could kind of really put a huge damper on so much that, that DC was publishing funny animals and they were publishing a lot of books that this is what was paying the bills, and, and war stories are definitely, uh, definitely one of those genres. So I'm going to give the synopsis, and then we're going to give a review. We open with a splash page of a Nazi tank approaching a group of soldiers, and Sergeant Rock is shown in an inset. And he says, that enemy tank on top of No Return Hill, was it about to rain down steel on top of our tin pots? Or was it as silent as the smoke rising up from it? It was a riddle only four guys from Easy Company could solve for us, and none of them could talk, no matter how much we yelled, calling Easy Company. Rock is our narrator, uh, and the framing device is them approaching the the hill um, and those four guys, and it, once they hit each of those four guys, we'll get a little flashback as to what happened, because they're going to talk about what happened on that night on No Return Hill. He assigned these four guys to whom he refers to as the Jokers of Easy Company to get to No Return Hill, which is clear at the moment, and they need to hold it. They're going to be attacking in the morning, and if they don't hold it now, the enemy will have it, and they'll have the high ground. The next morning, Rock and the rest of Easy Company head up the hill. They aren't fired upon. What he finds upon getting up there is that one of the men he sent up there is he's looking crazy-eyed and has all the signs of battle around them. It looks like the enemy have gone by with a tank, and while Rock can't tell exactly what happened, he praises the guy for holding his ground. The medics take the guy away, and Easy Company moves on. Later on, they find out the story of what happened with those four guys. They'd headed up the hill, which was a little spooky, even if it was clear. One of them, Sid, who said he can't stand heights, agreed to dig in below, while the others went on and thought to themselves at how tough Sid's position was. Sid sat and waited for a while and then saw a bright light, which he determined came from a potato masher grenade. Another one came in, but being momentarily blinded, he had to grope around to find it. He found it in time. He threw it back at the Nazis who were coming his way. He then began firing at them and saw the tank come by. He fired at the slits in the tank, hoping that it would somehow slow it down. We cut back to the present. Rock is climbing up the hill after leaving Sid to the medic and wondering what will happen up there And what they'll find. They find Mac and Al. Two of the other guys sitting back to back on the top of the hill. And then they get the medics to help them as well. We soon get their story. That is that they were up on the hill for a while. They saw the flashes and explosions from the fight that Sid was having. They heard the tank. They wondered if it was coming for them. And it was, so Mac began planting grenades along the tank's path. The tank approached, setting off the grenades, and appeared to stop. The grenades didn't take down the tank, but instead the tank stopped out to let out infantry, whom they fought off, never leaving their position, which is why Rock found them exactly that way. Rock and Easy Company begin to move on some more. They head toward the tank, where Nick, the last guy of the four, will probably be. They see the tank, and then they get down. Sarge realizes the tank isn't about to fire on them, but instead it's smoking, and he sees Nick's lying on top of it. As they get closer, they see that Nick's holding a gun, and it's inside the view slits of the tank. What Nick had done was he snuck up on the tank, climbed up on top of it, and he fired inside, presumably taking out anybody who was in there, the driver and gunner. They take Nick away on a stretcher, and Rock turns to to the readers and says, Yeah, that's the way it is in Easy Company where nothing's easy. So what do you think of this one?
2: I, I really, uh, as I said, kind of alluding to earlier, this is a, a very classic type of uh, Sergeant Rock story, just a, a story about, you know, it, it's not a massive battle. It's not a major battle. It's not guns blazing on each side. It's we have to hold this hill. Mm-hmm. And and we're, we're the infantry. We're the grunts on the street. So when, uh, that tiger comes rolling. That's always a bad sign. And t- and you uh, know, not uh, Nazi tanks are treated like monsters. Yeah. In uh, yeah. A Sergeant Rockstar because that's what they were to the infantry. The best you could hope was, like we see here, try and shoot it in the uh, eye slits and hope that you hit something. The uh, but uh, just it's it. it I, I like the use of the framing story. I, I mean, the art is is great. This is just a really nice little short story.
0: Yeah, I'm looking. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. So you... They, um, they, um uh, they make rock look weathered and which he was, I mean, he's this experienced old, not old, old, not but old. you know, this, this grizzled so. sergeant, which, which, um, I, I, he just looks like one of those guys who you wonder if he was ever actually young. Yeah. You know, like he was born that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, and I say that yeah, and I... out of respect for Kubert's art, because it really is, it's dynamic, um, his the facial expressions like with this guy Sid who they find who's just you know that's like that's not just a thousand yard stare that is a ten thousand yard stare that man has right there. He is just yeah he's catatonic in a way. And and the the flashback sequence on the top of um it's page seven of the story, he's firing at the tank and it's just a repeated shot of him starting in the left hand corner and getting larger and larger and larger and larger as he's just firing and firing and firing just trying to hit something up to the point where he just runs out of ammo and and mm-hmm. stuff like that is like it's really really
2: engaging. Yeah, and, the um, and... I think one of the one of the real strengths that that these DC books had and Sergeant Rock is a, is a great example of it is that in in this case Kaniger and Kubert were both veterans. Mm-hmm. So they had so yeah, the stories have been probably punched up a little bit but but they they experienced this they saw guys in the sh- with shell shock like sid looks here with like you said that the the wild eyes the the other the other thing i like is that's really the only time we see anybody's eyes really in light most of the time the guys have their helmets pulled down and sh- there's a, a lot of cross hatching and heavy inks yeah. over the front of their face so you can't you can't see what they're thinking you can't get a good idea a good insight into them because they, you know, they're, they're, especially the guys that have been on, uh, been holding this hill, they've, they've been almost dehumanized a bit because of their experience here.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But because these, you know, um, com- uh, Bill Shelley is a comics historian, and he, he wrote a book about kind of the history of, uh, uh, of a comics in America. And one of the lines he had, a quote I found earlier today, was that Kanegar's scripts were built on well-orchestrated dramatic sequences with the story's objects, not wartime danger and violence but the impact these events had on the men of Easy Company. So I think this is, again, a really good example of that. This is not about, yes, there's action here. There's quite a lot. Like you saying, it's very dynamic action and uh, the, the sound effects do a lot to that. I'll yeah. come back to yeah. that in a minute. But it's really about the, about what it, about the men, you know? It's really about the soldiers on the, on the the on the ground in the dirt. And that was one of the reasons, one of the things that, I think separated DC from when Marvel eventually got into doing some of their war books in the silver age. Mm -hmm. You look at this type of story for easy company, which I said is again, is a very typical type of story for easy. And then you look at Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love Sergeant Fury. Please don't, don't misunderstand me, but these guys are not characters. Mm. You know what I mean? These are, these are real men. Whereas in Sergeant Fury, it's uh, Fury and Dum Dum, and uh, it's 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 their characters. They're larger than life.
0: It, it, this ride's a final. This this hits that really good mean between the adventure story and the um the type of story you would get with a lot of films and things about, say, Vietnam, for instance. Where the focus was not necessarily on the soldier, it was on just the the trauma. Of if, and I don't yeah. even know if I'm, but you know what I'm talking about. And I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. phrasing yeah. it correctly. Whereas you have, you're right. You have. It, it's almost the story is almost subdued in a way too. It it isn't as it it has its action. I mean, the story's obviously had to have action, but it has its action. But it's not. You're right. It's not a. It is not an adventure. It is not a. These these guys aren't with the exception of maybe Rock, aren't characters per se and you're right that it is focusing on just the individual men just telling their essentially telling their war stories mm. which which i got out of it and you're right it didn't feel like a uh, they didn't feel larger than life in the way that um that some other or that like you know or my my point of reference for the first if you want to say with the first quote war comic i ever read and i put that in quotes would be like a gi joe which mm-hmm. were, I mean, there were, to, it was a toy line. It was essentially a cartoonish war comic, you yeah. know, with, with all sorts of, you know, and it was fun as hell. I'm not gonna, you know, I, I love it, but, but this isn't GI Joe.
2: Yeah. I this is, GI Joe is military fantasy. Yeah. Sergeant rock and easy company is, is, um, we call it historical military, you mm-hmm. know, now because it's obviously it's in the past. we you could you could very you could easily see this type of storytelling for something during world war 1 for korea vietnam
1: mm-hmm.
2: not not necessarily the details but this style of storytelling is is something that that you could see easily in any type of uh conflict it doesn't have any fantastical elements to it you know the it's it's it boils down to the the bravery of ordinary men put into extraordinary scenario you know I alluded earlier to the sound effects. Yeah. And one of the things about, about Kaniger and Orlando and Kubert and uh, Andrew and all these guys that basically worked on war books for such a long time was that they almost established a sort of vocabulary of sound effects. And we see some of that here. So like the, the panel you referred to with Sid yeah. is uh, firing his rifle. Pow, 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 pow. That is the sound of a single shot rifle. That's yeah. a report of a rifle. And then in the next panel, we see clank, clank, clank. Tanks always say clank, clank, clank in DC books. Mm-hmm. That is the most common. If you read read any issue of Haunted Tank, you will see <laughs> dozens of times saying clank, clank, clank. That's the sound tanks make. And then we get a rat tat attack, which yeah. is which is a machine gun. Sure. The one that the only other one that's not um, that the common one that's not in this particular story is buddha, buddha, buddha. And that's the sound B U D D A. That's the sound that a, a German burp gun uh-huh. and sometimes an American M 60 would make because it's not like a machine gun on a tank where it's firing continuously. It's just firing in burst.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, bruh, bruh, bruh. which,
0: so, uh, which Marvel of all places would use, um, at least early on in the Punisher yep I re- mm-hmm. I just I remember that from early issues of the Punisher series from about 87 or 88 or so. Yeah No, you're right. It, it, you're right
2: and it, 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 it's weird because it, it evolves, like I said into this like common vocabulary so that as you you know that these are the, and again, with uh, Kaniger being a veteran, these are sounds he would have heard.
1: Mm-hmm. you know
2: so it's it, that's it's a representation of reality. You know, we don't know what it sounds like to hear a unbreakable shield bounce off a wall, <laughs> but we know what the report of a, of an army rifle is, you know? Yeah,
0: and, and you're right. It, it created vocabulary and you said that, um, Kaniger and, uh, Joe Orlando were pretty much in, pretty much heading up the war books for the time. So you're creating almost a house style yeah. for mm-hmm. the, for the war books. And, um. I just I love how tightly I mean the story a lot of the books in the 50s were there was more than one story in most comics so you had a lot of 12 pagers and this is yeah this is 13 12 if you don't count the um splash page that starts it it's really tightly written yeah. um and 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 yet at the same time it feels Canninger took advantage of the one thing that um, you have to do for a short story if you're writing it, and that is keep it short in terms of its time frame. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't you can't have weeks go by. You could, I mean, you probably could. There's an exception to every rule, but very often your uh, really good short stories take place over a short amount of time, and that's what he does with this. He just has that one night they have to hold the hill. You're right. It's it's. Um, there's no large scale going on here. It's just one, one thing, and that I think that's what helps make this work. Um, and also have Rock be the narrator, and yet have the other guys essentially be the protagonists, like Rock's reporting to us mm-hmm. about it, which is which I yeah. thought was a great touch.
2: That that's not uncommon in these, especially in these early mm. um, early issues of of, the, of Rock and Easy where. It's either Rock talking to us directly as the reader, or sometimes they'll be in a situation where they're under fire and he's trying to calm them down. He goes, at one point he says, well, the oldest gimmick in a sergeant's handbook is to tell him a story to calm him down mm-hmm. and tell him about some time that things were really bad, you know? Yeah. So, And I, I think it's uh, funny, earlier you said, as far as Kubert's depiction of Rock, he looks like a guy that was never young, that he might have been born that way. Yeah. What's funny is a couple of months down the line, in our Army at War 90, there's a story called Three Stripes Hill. And Three Stripes Hill is the origin of how Sergeant Rock became a sergeant. Because, and, and, and ironically, it starts in the present, I say present in air quotes, the present for our characters, with two of the guys in Easy saying, yeah, he looks like he was born with those three stripes on his, on his sleeve. <laughs> And so Rock remembers that he uh, when he first came to Easy as a buck private, and the um, uh, the, the captain says, "Well, you know, our, our 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 force our force organization is full, so nobody gets a promotion unless I get killed." And the and so, so the lieutenant. He's he's you know make, watching out for me. And it goes on down the line till it's the sergeant, the corporal, the private first class, and Rock. And the four of them are holding a position, waiting to be reinforced. And then, uh, so first, it's the uh, it's the private first class that gets killed, and they say, "Hey, Rock, you got a, you just earned a stripe." And then the corporal gets killed, and he goes, "You just earned another stripe, Rock." And then finally, the sergeant dies, and it's just Rock holding this position, and he says, "It's him against it's like uh, it's it's like a, co- uh, a company of." Uh, of Germans. He said it for 30 seconds. I was all by myself and it was the longest 30 seconds of my life. And I said, well, congratulations. You got a field assignment. You earned those stripes. And he says, uh, back, uh, out of the flashback, he says that, you know, he'd give anything not to have earned these stripes, but he's got them. And now he's got to make sure that everyone else stays safe.
0: Yeah. You've read a lot. Um, you've read along a lot more than I have with, with Sergeant Rock. Did, did they ever, um, do stories of him, um, I'm assuming that the time frame for a lot of his stories are probably forty-four to forty-five, like post and pre—you know, VE Day. Do they ever get specific with when the stories are taking place, or do they ever do anything after the war with him, or are they a lot of them? Are most of them similar to what we were just uh, going over?
2: They do get they do get specific at certain points where. Like, for instance, maybe they've moved into occupied France, so they know, and they'll give a, a month and a year. Okay. So you know it's at this portion of the war. And so it it's kind of sets the stage. It's like, okay, well, now, you know, the Germans are retreating, the Allies are advancing, that sort of stuff. They, in the traditional war comics, they never told any stories about Rock or Easy after the war.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: In fact, it was a long held kind of belief. And I think this kind of entered into the realm almost of comic book urban legend that Rock was supposed to have been killed with the last shot fired in World War II. Okay. So that that there was now eventually they did bring Rock. What there was that big DC story was it Our Worlds at War, where Rock was like a general.
0: Maybe I, think. I don't know. I have those trades, but I haven't read them.
2: Yeah, I I, I wasn't reading that. like Superman at the time, but I remember reading about that after. And and so ostensibly he did survive and go on to have a career. Mm -hmm. I I have a hard time jiving that, that, that rock, whatever, move into being a commissioned officer. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: You know, I mean, after he turns down field commissions in, in the book, you know, that almost becomes like a gag (laughs) in the later years of the book. But uh, I can't, somebody like him who earned his stripes the way he did, I can't see him becoming a general. That just doesn't, that doesn't jive. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, these stories, they, they, yeah, they uh, 43, 44, 45, mm-hmm. I think really that that's kind of the meat and potatoes of easy company. Most of their stories take place in France or Germany. And, um, I'm trying to think if I've ever read any that took place in the Pacific, I don't think so. I think they're always in the European theater.
0: Okay. Um, and the, sh- the series ran until 1988, um, it started as Army at War, eventually got picked up as Sergeant Rock, with issue like three hundred one, three hundred two, or so. yeah, somewhere around there. And then ran to the I think it was in the four twenties or so when it finally, mm-hmm. um, finally was canceled. I think by then it was ba- it was bi monthly. Yeah, um, I know Andy Kubert was doing the art, um, because I have a random issue that I picked out of a um quarter bin. And Joe yeah. did the cover, but Andy did the interior on the Rock story. Um, of note, and this has to be a Bob Haney thing because he co-created the character, but I, just, I was curious as to like, you know, I was trying to look at where Sergeant Rock appeared um, in DC comics or continuity after the series was canceled in the late 1980s. And we'll get to all that in a little more detail after our next story, uh, but Mike's Amazing World will take you chronologically through their appearances in terms of continuity and not publication sometimes. And this is how I just stumbled upon the fact that Sergeant Rock had six Brave and the Bold team ups with Batman. Mm -hmm. Six. That has to be a Bob Haney thing. (laughs) (laughs) Rob Rob Kelly is just nodding his head right now. (laughs) Zaney Haney. But um,
2: and I want to and I want to say Rock was in at least a couple of DC Comics Presents with Superman.
0: I think so. I didn't in look DC, that up, but so. I'm I'm going to assume that's that's true. And of course, Sergeant Rock and DC Company do make an appearance in Crisis and in Infinite Earths number yeah. th- like two, three, and four at the very beginning, in the first third of that series when when um the monitors the exact circumstances are the Monitor's tuning fork appears in Markovia, the European country, um, fictional European country, which I believe is supposed to be Eastern European, like right around like where Czechoslovakia is or where what yep. was then Czechoslovakia. Yep. And uh, Geoforce and Dr. Polaris are sent to, as the agents of the Monitor, to defend it. And they happen upon Nazis and Easy Company in Markovia in the 40s and... Geo Force is like I get to get revenge on what my, they did to my people, and Doctor Polaris is just kind of like, yeah, <laughs> it's like <laughs> I get to wreak some havoc here. And I think blue, I think this is where Blue Beetle is as well, but um, but Sergeant Rocket Easy Company and the Haunted Tank, I believe, is in there as well. There's, it's almost like how. It, it was almost like um, Wolfman and Paris in the same way they did the Western characters. were mm-hmm. doing the same thing with the war characters is just like, as a way of saying, Hey, DC published these and, you know, you can have Sergeant rock in, in the DC universe and not have to have him be, you know, a superhero because world war two actually happened. Yeah. So there's just a little no of trivia, but yeah, the,
2: a, a series with the, from the the, uh, the real-world perspective,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, I, and I don't want to talk too much about Crisis, because as you said, uh, Mike and Scott, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they do a fantastic job with that, and, and I really hope we get back to some of them soon. But just from a real-world perspective, to do a story like Crisis on Infinite Earths that is so much about not just the history of the DC universe as a fictional construct, but about DC Comics as a publisher. Mm-hmm. To do that and not include... Rockin' Easy, Haunted Tank, um, you know, Jonah Hex, uh, Nighthawk and Cinnamon yeah. and Batlash and all those genre characters, that would be that would be disingenuous, you know? Mm-hmm. It's they were they they no, they weren't Superman and Batman, but they were a crucial part of DC just like the superheroes were. Now admittedly by that point the lot they were just either I mean the western books were pretty much all gone by that point. Yeah. The war books they were still publishing most of them, but as you said, they a lot of them were bi-monthly, mm-hmm. so they would alternate. You get an issue of Rock one month and then Unknown Soldier the next month mm-hmm. kind of thing. So and so they they were on their last legs, but I I always liked that. And I didn't read Crisis until only a couple of years ago, just because of when I got into comics. But mm-hmm. I really did enjoy that that they they made a point of including these characters, these genre characters. And and it, you know, again. The, the crisis had no effect. You could always tell World War II stories because there was no pre-crisis and post-crisis World War II. Yeah. It's the same World War II. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, only,
0: the only place, I believe, in the old DCU prior – the pre-crisis DCU that World War II was any different was Earth-X. But that was because of um, Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters because right. the Nazis had won. But that is different. That's – alternate earth science fictiony type of stuff, but you're right. Like by and large world war two always happened. And one of the things that, you know, we've always said, as people have always pointed out when they're talking about world war two and superheroes is that most of the stories, especially DCs don't have the superheroes fighting in world war two in and I don't know if I, this might be a conjecture on my part. I think mostly out of respect for the soldiers who were fighting where, you know, Superman could. And in fact, there was a story that Les Daniels has in his book of like how Superman could end the war. Um, yes. I think it was published prior to 41.
2: Wasn't that in like that, that wasn't in a comic. That was in like Look Magazine. Yeah, wasn't it was something
0: like that. I've got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was Yeah, it was February seventh of nineteen forty. So the United States wasn't even in the war. They were about a year and a half away from from Pearl Harbor. So um so at that point but for the most part, like, you know, you had a lot of like, you know, stories where usually it was they were fighting saboteurs and you know, it was mm-hmm. like let the soldiers fight the war out of out of respect for them. Or there was a super yeah. weapon
2: or something like that, but um, our other stuff. and that kind of ties into. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. That one issue you did of the Nom mm-hmm. with the superheroes. Yes, and the idea that how ridiculous a concept it is yeah. to try, you know, with that—that that you can't. And and that again, I I, I have that issue, and I, I really think again, it's a meta commentary sort mm-hmm. of thing. It's like you know, the, the, there's a there's more to comics than just. Superheroes, and you see how ridiculous it would be if we tried to tell this story in that universe rather yeah. than to tell uh, an actual war story,
0: yeah. And um, just on that tangent for a moment, um, that story is rid- it's deliberately ridiculous, and of it, it really is how Cap Iron Man and Thor would end the war, and um, very much in the vein of that, how Superman would end the war story. Um, and when I talked to Doug Murray his impression that were most of the fans understood it yet. There were a few fans who didn't seem to get what he was going with because there were a few letters here and there that were like, why are there superheroes in my war comic? And I was, cause I read through the letter column every time I do an issue and I'm like, and I remember reading those and thinking like, did you read the issue? Like, did, you know, did you did you actually sit and read it? It was almost like it's almost like yell, having somebody like scream and yell about a headline in a newspaper and you ask and turning around to them and being like, Did you read the article? Like that's exactly how I felt. But you're no, right. No,
2: I only I only read the articles on the websites that provide news that agrees with my worldview. <laughs> so no, I didn't read the article. <laughs>
0: Uh, what is the what is the political viewpoint of, of just Facebook in general? I don't even know if it's <laughs> click is clickbait a political viewpoint?
2: <laughs> I I guess so. I don't know. I mean, you know, uh that some I, I think it was um I think it might have been Michael Leyland put up the the of the, uh, the Photoshop of the old like pulp novel cover Uh-huh. and it says the man who walked away from facebook you know <laughs> like <laughs> i wish it could be me man it's like i have to be on it for the podcast that's why i resisted for so long
0: <laughs> i've been doing that thing where i go through my entire feed and if people start posting too many articles they link to i've been kind of like blocking not the people but the article site because it's all crap anyway that i don't want to yeah read. all right so you'll
2: notice anyone who follows me on facebook it's mostly monsters I mean that's that's not an offensive thing. You can't get too political about giant monsters, I don't think, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Sports, uh, sports, sports, um, movies. You know, random crap. That's usually made. yeah.
2: Hey, well, you know, you said that, or you said that to me. It's like we're on opposite ends of a political <laughs> spectrum. Yet we're both Mets fans. And I said, I said, there's politics, and then there's stuff that's important. Yeah, exactly. And the Mets fall into stuff that's important. So.
0: <laughs> we're we're apparently both gluttons for punishment.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're both Mets fans. But uh, you know. So anyway, <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. So getting on, um, our next story is from a comic book that is literally the weirder of DC War Comics offerings because it's called Weird War Tales. Uh, this is not from the 1950s. This actually began in 1971. It ran for 124 issues, ending in 1983. Um, it had several different uh, main like feature stories, uh, one of which very often was the Creature Commandos, and the story is called Dinosaur Convoy. The creative team is Mike W. Barr, writer, Bob Hall uh, and Jerry Ordway, the artist. I believe Bob Hall is credited as the penciler. Jerry Ordway is the inker. John Costanza is the letterer. Adrian Roy is your colorist. Len Ween is, is the editor. And after a gorgeous splash page, which is drawn by Joe Kubert uh, for the entire issue of um, Weird War, War Tales number 100, which is where this comes from, and there's two stories in the book. We're just looking at the Creature Commandos one. The the Q. I just wanted to mention the Kubert page because it's Death wearing a soldier's uniform, and it's yes. very Crypt Keeper ish. It's 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 horrific and it's gorgeous, and it's it's just worth the twenty five cents I paid for it.
2: Oh yeah, um, alone. Death Death was the host of Weird War Tales. Okay, so it's appropriate that you say it's Crypt Keeper ish because every issue of Weird War is introduced by Death and and it's usually death wearing the uh, the uniform of a soldier from the era that the story is. So here you see he's wearing his World War II gear. Yeah. But in front of him, you see there's, you know, uh, a Viking helmet, mm-hmm. like a um, a centurion's helmet, yeah. the cap of looks like from a Confederate soldier, yeah. Napoleonic troops armor. So that that that's death's kind of motif in this in weird war tales is that you know, it, it does. You know, like, I, I'm I, he's all about war because at the end of the day, he collects, yeah. So it's 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 the book is very grim. Mm-hmm. And Weird War Tales was a straight, straight up anthology for like the first 90 issues. It wasn't until I want to say it's like 91, 92 that the creature commandos became a recurring feature. Okay, uh, okay. GI, GI Robot occurs appears a couple of times in there, but GI yes. Robot predates. Yes that he 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 appeared first in uh war that time forgot books in the in the sixties. So for a long time, Weird War was really a mashup of the mystery books like House of Mystery, House of Secrets
1: mm-hmm.
2: and the War Books. It was creepy stories about war. And it even had a host, like a mystery book. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a it's it's definitely a hybrid, but it's a lot of fun and it's very grim a lot of times because you can get away with more, you know, um Kind of, uh, you know, kind of her horror style endings, yeah, because it's yeah. a mystery book. So like you said, that this this grotesque image of death dressed as a soldier holding a scythe, with uh, I don't even want to know what's coming out of his mouth. I thought it was like a squid, it, it's, but it's, it's like he has multiple tongues yeah. and it's ruling.
0: Yeah, it's, it's nasty. It is nasty. <laughs> um, and just just a, a bit of trivia: if you if you go to the middle of the book. Um, the letter column is called APO World Weird War War Tales. And for this issue and then the following issue, they have just a list Mm
1: -hmm. of
0: every single issue up to that point and what the title of the stories in them were as well as the creative team, at least we're talking uh, writer, penciler, and inker, some of which were reprints, some of which were not. And I'm seeing names like, I'm seeing Wolfman, I'm seeing Kanegar, Adams, I'm going to assume that's Neil, um, Al- Alcala, Alex Toth. So mm-hmm. it got, they got their fair share of, and some of these guys back when they were probably, some of them when they were starting out, some of them, you know, well into their careers, but they got a decent amount of um, of, of talent on this. Yeah,
2: well, that's one of the things when you're just doing shorts. Yeah. It's like, hey, I, I need you. Can you do me eight pages for Weird War? Yes, I can fill that in this month, you know.
0: Number 40, especially on the artists. Yeah, anymore. number 46, Steve Skeets, writer, the day after Doomsday. Steve Skeets, writer, Steve Ditko, your penciler. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> Scott's just gonna, Vinnie Coletta, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> go and ruin it. Um, yeah, man. but. You know, the funny thing is, too, and before I get to the synopsis here, you don't usually get a lot of detailed creator credits like this for some of those anthology series. Um, I remember the the horror ones. The Ghosts was the one I was looking at in the horror episode, and that was a little bit hard to find everybody who contributed to it. The romance ones especially. Um, oh, yeah. I know one of the ones that Stella and I looked at was that John Ramita had done The Pencils. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't tell whether or not it was just an old inventory story that DC had or if he actually had done it for that. But either way, you didn't get a lot of um, – you didn't know who was doing it from month to month because they weren't always credited. And even yeah, now, and a lot of that's lost the time.
2: Right. And, and as as spotty as it is with DC, mm-hmm. when you start getting – one of the other major publishers of war comics all through this era was Charlton. Uh-huh. Charlton's record with credits is abysmal trying to find who worked on a specific genre book for Charlton is like spitting in the wind because they have, they have no credits. And the problem is, is they were never as popular as DC where people actually did the research. So a lot of those guys, a lot of the the guys that did work on the Charlton genre books is completely lost. And you just gotta, you know, you just gotta kind of wing it and you can, some of it like you, you can, okay, I recognize that artist or something, but, First off, that's not one of my strong suits. And secondly, their, um, their printing is so poor most mm-hmm. of the time that it's hard to tell anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So our story, we're going to
0: head to the South Pacific. We're staying in World War II. We're heading to South Pacific in 1943. Where a plaintiff full of Japanese soldiers lands on an island and is set upon by a group of what seems like monsters, but they're actually our heroes. Warren Griffith, once an Oklahoma farm boy, who's now a werewolf, Lucky Taylor, who has been surgically altered to become a sort of Frankenstein's monster, and uh, he's a mute, by the way. Vincent Velcro, a vampire who is. He's got scientifically imbued vampire powers, which sounds very close to Morbius, the living vampire. Um, yep. we we'll talk about that later. And then M- M- Lieutenant Matthew Shreve, who is a human, he's the leader of the group. Uh, these are the creature commandos. And they have the upper hand in the fight until there's a rumble and they are taken by a surprise from a group of dinosaurs coming right at them. And this is the war that time forgot. Uh, the creature commandos manage to avoid getting trampled, and when they reach safety, Shreve laments that the dinosaurs crushed their radio and therefore cut off most of their communications. Through conversation, we get the sense that the Americans and the Japanese both know that there's something weird about this island. So both have sent spotters out to look over the island and see what's been going on. Velkers says that the dinosaurs kind of throw a monkey wrench into everything, and Shreve says, well, maybe we can use them to our advantage. The Japanese at this point have regrouped. Their captain gives a rousing speech that ends with everyone screaming Banzai and charging across the island to destroy our, our heroes. Meanwhile, Shreve is trying to figure out a way to lure Dyn- the Dinosaurus to them. Then I'm going to assume this is an Apatosaurus uh, attacks them and they try to fend it off while Shreve sits back and takes pictures. The commandos don't do so well against, against the Apatosaurus and then, And then Superman arrives and rescues four kids from a collapsed mine and gives them Twinkies. (laughs) Wait, that's a hostess ad. Okay. Back to the story. Uh, Griffith changes from werewolf back into man at the most inopportune time, of course. And then he finds himself captured by the Japanese. Lucky finally takes out the Apatosaurus by the neck. Uh, He snaps it and they head out to find Griffith, but not before lucky who is, like I said, is mute. He gives a silent scream. Hours later, Griffith is being held and chained up in a shed and the Japanese are torturing him to try to get him to talk. He swears I'm not going to talk and just as they start to torture him again, the team bursts in and starts taking out his captors. Griffith breaks his chains, he turns back into a werewolf, and then he goes after another one of them. A huge fight ensues in which the creature commandos emerge victorious, and Shree says he's going to use stolen radio to contact headquarters and let them know of the Japanese plan. However, he spots a convoy of Japanese battleships offshore, and he realizes that it might be too late. So instead, they head up a mountain, they find a pterodactyl's nest, and in order to get the attention of Mama Pterodactyl, they start shooting at the eggs. On cue, Mama picks them all up. Shrew jumps on her neck and steers her out to sea. The Pterodactyl begins screeching, and this manages to get the attention of a host of other prehistoric creatures, and they all attack the Japanese naval convoy, ending the threat. When everything is over, the commandos float in a raft, and they wait for their pickup plane. Shreve shows Velcro his camera, and he brags that he got some great information for intelligence. They'll be able to turn those dinosaurs into great weapons. Lucky gets very angry, and he throws the camera into the ocean, leaving Velcro to say, You made us monsters, Shreve. Made us fight your stinking war. But that's something we can understand. Those dinosaurs are simple creatures living the only lives they know, and you won't do, the, do to them what you've done to us. Not this time. So um, before I, before I go on to talking about what this uh, what the this, what this story was about and everything, just a little note on the creator credits, Bob Hall, I had to look him up because it was not a name I recognize. He has a lot of credits with Marvel, mm-hmm. a lot with Valiant in the early 90s. Yep. Um, and this is a uh, very, very early Jerry Ordway. Uh, this is Jerry Ordway's third listed credits. At least according to my amazing World of Comics, he had a story in Mystery in Space number 117 in March 1981. And then he had a story in War, Weird War Tales number ninety-nine. Uh, both were inking credits. Um and there are a couple of pages, a couple of panels here and there that look very Jerry Ordway. Mm-hmm. You, where you can tell he inked them. So but so uh I'll start with you again. What what's uh, what was your impression? Because this is totally different from the Sergeant oh, Rock yeah. story
2: we Oh yeah, because you're what you're doing here is you're taking not one, but two of the more outlandish mm-hmm. uh, war concepts and mashing them together. Um, the joke about War That Time Forgot is that if you look at the, it's abbreviated WTTF, which is very <laughs> close to WTF. Um, most, most War That Time Forgot stories are tend to be of the escape from Dinosaur Island type mm-hmm. with men or units stranded on Dinosaur Island and fighting to escape. And the ending is very typical of War That Time Forgot. Oh, or all the film was destroyed in our camera, so yeah. no one will know about Dinosaur Island. It's like the Savage Land in, yeah. in
0: Marvel. It's
2: well, like I want to say that um, that Dinosaur Island is a like a viable location, at least in post-Crisis DC, because I want to say it was in Who's Who as a location. Um, Rob Shag, you want to help me out on that? I'd appreciate it. But uh, and then then you take the Creature Commandos, who are kind of like the Dirty Dozen or the Losers. Except they're all monsters.
0: They're like, like the Dirty Dozen or the Losers, cross with the Monster Squad.
2: Yeah, it's so it's very yeah. it's very silly this story. Oh, it totally it, is. It's fun. Yeah, it, yeah. it's fun though. It, it this this is more in line with you know when I, I, a lot of times I hear war books decried as either kind of like jackbooted propaganda mm-hmm. or just ridiculous adventure stories. This kind of falls into the latter camp. Yeah, but it's monsters and dinosaurs. I mean what's not to like about this? It's, uh, it, the, the art team is a bit odd because I, I know Bob Hall primarily from his work at Valiant. Okay. And, uh, so, but to see him do a war story seems a little out of place for him. And his figures are more kind of, uh, trim superheroes than they are soldiers. But again, there's not a lot of normal soldiers in this story to
0: begin with. No, I think the Japanese and then, um, their cap their Shreve, their captain other than that um it's yeah you know, like victor velcro is a it's a goofy yeah. name for a character yes it is but he is there, there's a couple of panels where he is clearly of the super he's got a couple of superhero poses and and things like that and uh but yeah i was i'm, I'm flipping through it again and like but like i said there's a couple of pages um where like at the bottom, the the middle, the bottom of page two, the middle panel. I'm like, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at Shreve looking back, saying, "Keep killing freaks." And I'm looking, I'm like, that's clearly Jerry Ordway. Yeah, uh, it's it's a very Ordway face, um, mm-hmm. which is great. I mean, I love love the man's art. So, uh, yeah. but, and I just kind of found that interesting that you know, because this is not a comic you associate with, probably like you. It sounds like either artist.
2: No. To be honest, no. You would you wouldn't expect. To, I mean, Jerry Ordway working at DC that makes sense. But doing mm-hmm. Weird War, it's like that's eh, a little out of the beaten path for him.
0: Yeah, but when you that, find that, when you find out that it was like a it was like his third credit, it makes more sense. Bob Hall had been working steadily since the seventies. Yeah, I believe.
2: And uh, what what's interesting about this is as late as this was published because this was. Uh, when was this? This was June 1981,
0: cover mm-hmm. date. Yeah, on sale in, in this, March.
2: Yeah. So in this story, um, and the script by Mike W. Barr, and I love Mike W. Barr. Yeah, me too. Mostly on like Batman, Batman and the Outsiders. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, i and I'm, and I. It, again, this is just a fun romp. So, but I like that, or not like that, but it's interesting to note that even as late as 1981, when Griffith is being tortured, he uses the term nip. Yeah. And that was, not uncommon at all to hear kind of the World War II era racial slurs, you know, nip, Jap, Kraut, those were the common ones mm-hmm. in these books. And the the logic, of course, being that, well, these books take place during the war. That's how people spoke.
0: Yeah. I know you know I know Roy Thomas used them a couple of times in All-Star Squadron as well. Um
2: it's it's I I part of me really wonders If, I mean, this is only 35 years ago. I say only, it was 35 (laughs) years, but it was was the eighties, Yeah. Yeah. but we, but they were saying it and nobody seemed to have a problem with it because it was, it was a depiction of a time period. Could we get away with that today from a book at DC or Marvel? One of the big two. I think. I don't know.
0: I, I want to say that. If it's within the context like this where it's taking place at the if it's historical, then probably yes, yeah, if you don't have that historical context with it though I don't
2: think it would mm-hmm you know yeah uh, i'm I'm um do you remember uh cheese was a while ago d c did their online comics initiative called zuda
0: mm yes. Vaguely. And there was
2: a book, there was a book that came out of that called Bayou mm-hmm. and Bayou took place in, I want to say either the late forties, early fifties in the deep South. Okay. And the word nigra, N-I-G-R-A was thrown around a lot in that book, mm-hmm. which was the accepted term, uh, at the time in the South that, that was that, that was the educated air quotes up to the mic term uh-huh. in the South. And I remember that book catching a lot of flack for it and the creator saying, look, this is a depiction of a time period. That was how it was, that, that was the word that was used, you know? Yeah. So, and, and I just remember that and, and we've become, you know, it, it seems like the comics medium now is so um, under the microscope for anything that somebody can complain about and bitch and moan about online yeah. that I would hate to see a World War II story where they used Jap or Kraut in the context of it being a World War II story and someone getting pissed off. I mean, that, that was the way that was the way everybody talked back then. Yeah. That was what it was, you know? So even here in, in 1981, they're still using that because that was appropriate for the time. So it's just kind of food for thought more than anything else. You know, it's, would we get away with that? And I say get away with it. Would we be able to use that in, in the context of a war story nowadays? Yeah. I know that... Um, in modern in, in some small press modern uh, books that take place in World War II, they can get away with all sorts of salty language because they're they're small press books. Well, yeah. Nobody cares. Nobody's paying attention. Know? Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and I think you could get away with it more. Like I said, if you have that context, I don't think you could get away with some of the depictions of the Japanese that you would have had back in the 1940s though. Yes. It was very yes. race. I think, I think nowadays, even if it was the kind con- like, even if it was taken place at the time, it's like, no, that those were clearly very racist um, depictions and seeing them can be uncomfortable, but at the same time, it actually is a, is a, is a lesson to, you know, you can learn a whole lesson about, you know, the depiction of race in, in, Mm-hmm. in comics and things by looking at those in the same way when you see, um, older comics with characters who are essentially wearing blackface yeah, and you get a, you, you understand in your head, okay, that was the time, but you, you, so you don't get, you can't get outraged at people who existed a hundred years ago. You know, like it's, I'm probably not explaining it very well. Like you understand, but at the same time you feel, you know, you you don't feel, you don't accept, it's no, not it's, acceptable. It's,
2: yeah, you know? no, it's, not, it's not, it's not acceptable, but you're, by the time we're looking at it now, it doesn't, it exists as a historical relic. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's like watching, uh. Uh, when when Disney was releasing all of their short subjects on those uh, in, in the co- compilation tins, mm-hmm. they did the chronological Donald, the chronological Mickey, and so forth. Mm-hmm. There were some of the ones that came out during the war, where they had Leonard Moulton come on there and explain that these were, you know, that they, they, these are pre- pre- presented for you know historical purposes, and that this was how they were produced, and you know that that this was accepted at the time. It just it doesn't mean that you um, uh, uh, exonerate it or validate that depiction. Yeah. But you're looking at it from a historical point of view for historical merit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I even had a note here that the way that Hall draws the Japanese soldiers here was very common for this era, that they're clearly uh, drawn to have Asian features, but they're not caricatures. They're not. I always jump back to Black Hawk, like I say, because that one always seemed to be the worst as far mm-hmm. as the depiction of the Japanese forces as grotesque, cartoonish yeah. characters. Whereas here, I mean, they're clearly Japanese. You can tell uh, from, said, from the, the the facial features and their skin tone yeah. uh, to the degree that they could do the coloring at that point. But it's not, it's not an offensive depiction. No. It's not, and It's not meant to be an offensive depiction either. You know, we're not, we're not laughing. Oh, look at them stupid Japs. You know, we're not, that, that's what, whereas that in, in the mid forties in Black Hawk or whatever, that was kind of the, the intention,
0: Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, no. And I've, I've seen the, I've seen depictions of them either as cartoonish and caricaturish or as inhuman, Mm -hmm. like a monstrous inhuman type, um, almost looking like a zombie. Yeah, we'd see like a modern day zombie. Um, so, uh, I'm trying to think of this, I, I the I, I the dinosaurs were. <laughs> um, I have a I have an eight year old, so he he's done his <laughs> he's been through his dinosaur phase, and and still likes yes. dinosaurs. Um, like I said, this looks like an apatosaurus. I'm not sure if it is. They look more like monsters than they do dinosaurs. To be yes, completely honest do. with you, because um, I'm like, why is a herbivore attacking them? And then, like, you've got... The, there's that one It's on page 12. Um, thank God the pages are numbered. Um, yeah. Where you have, like, one that kind of looks like a dolphin or shark, but, you know, has just a grimace on its face. And then, you know, I swear <laughs> I see, like, Scylla and Charybdis from The Odyssey in here. I mean, it's very, very sea monsters rather than, yeah. say... Well, that,
2: that, um... one, that one's an ichthyosaurus.
0: Okay.
2: <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> no, I know that. I just... Yeah, they that's them... Ixiosaurus yeah. right there, <laughs> man. But yeah, it would be fun to have Scylla and Carbitus. I mean, yeah, isn't yeah. Carbitus just basically like a giant whirlpool? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a bit,
0: a bit <laughs> Scylla's the... But the, the... yeah, I mean,
2: the the dinosaurs. there was no... There was not even an attempt oh, in cool. War of the Time Forgot stories to ever depict the dinosaurs in any realistic manner. Yeah. I mean... Uh, the, the, the way you hand wave it is like, well, these creatures have obviously evolved over the millions of years that they've been trapped here on Dinosaur Island. Mm-hmm. So they don't behave like their prehistoric ancestors do. Yeah. <laughs> they also are now, you know, bright, bright red and yellow and orange <laughs> so that their color palette matches what we're able to print.
0: I was going to say, whatever Adrian Roy was able to get her hands on... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: I do like that killer uh, apatosaurus. Or back in the eighties, we'd call it a killer brontosaurus.
0: It would be. He's,
2: he's pissed off. I mean, look at page six on the bottom. That is a pissed off looking dinosaur. Yeah. and he and look at his legs. He he's jacked.
0: Oh yeah, he he is going right <laughs> after them. So, but the idea that you tick off the the one the one type of dinosaur that can fly by shooting at her eggs. I mean, that's. <laughs> That, uh, you know, uh, it's, the two guys are looking on at this going like pretty horrified, but at the same time, it's like, that's pretty good thinking on your feet there, man. Yeah. So it's, this is done. Well, that,
2: that, that's one of the cliche things about creature commandos is that Shreve is the real monster, you know? and that, Yeah. That's an ongoing theme to the point that I want to say they even kind of made that reference when... The Creature Commandos teamed up with Batman on Batman the Brave and the Bold,
1: uh-huh. the
2: cartoon series. They, they were like one of the – when they team up for the short yeah. at the beginning, <laughs> it was them. And and, and um, they, had, they eventually were joined by a, by a female Gorgon. Huh. I forget her name. But I think she was in there too. And and even then, like Batman was like giving Shreve the business for how he treated him and stuff. So <laughs>
0: – <laughs> so, um this this is from the early 80s and like we said earlier when we we're talking about sergeant rock uh sergeant rock and gi combat and the unknown soldier really did die out and i think i want to say sergeant rock was the last one held on for the longest and then that ended in march of 88 um and since then on a constant basis there hasn't been a traditional war comic that dc has sold um I covered the NOM in another podcast, which was a Marvel comic, and that ran from about 86 to about 94, the very beginning of 94. At one point, they tried to get other war comics off the ground. Doug Murray did a series called Semper Fi, but uh, that didn't last very long. War comics in DC are few and far between. There was a Blackhawk series in the late 80s into the early 90s, and um, The Unknown Soldier has been revived here and there enemy ACE. So there's been mini series and stuff, but, um, it's, it's not, it's not an entirely dead genre on the level of say romance. I'd say out of all the genres I've covered, romance is probably the one that's the most dead. Um, or because those type of comics just aren't, you know, aren't, uh, are way much of their time with this though. Um, it doesn't have the legs it used to um, any reason as to what that happened. I mean, my, my theory, my hypothesis has to do more with um, the action movies of the time when it was canceled and the type of hero we were getting in, in other entertainment and why like the Punisher became so popular over in Marvel and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're Stallone, you're Schwarzenegger, you're Chuck yeah, Norris yeah. and stuff. But um, and, cause war movies by and large, World War II movies, by and large, in the '80s, are kind of few and far between.
2: Um, yeah, we got more into uh, the Vietnam films like *Platoon* and mm-hmm. *Full Metal Jacket*, which did not portray the military in a in a positive light. No, you know whether you know not in you know not saying we had to go to the full length of the very jingoistic portrayal of a lot of the uh, the World War Two movies in the '50s and '60s, mm-hmm. but. Uh, it was a combination of things. One of them was, as you said, it was changing taste. Um, you know, the we the kids that grew up playing soldier, now we were getting into the point where the last war was Vietnam, and we didn't want to play that, you know, as as kids. so you didn't they didn't want to read comics about it. Um, the changeover from the domination of the newsstand to the direct market really yeah. hurt war books because war books, like most genre books, sold better at the newsstand than they did at the, at the direct market specialty shops. The specialty shops were there primarily to serve the superhero fans. And so that became what those shop owners bought. And that's because that's what their clientele read. So a lot of these books that were supported by being bought off the stands were, you know, just slowly began to just hemorrhage readers until there was nothing left. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of it, like I said, it's, uh, the, for all the for all the changes and and advances in you know the style of storytelling and such that we got in the eighties, I've always thought that that, you know, around the time of the post crisis era, things got really kind of insular and that we were focused, especially at DC, so much on the superhero stuff that anything that fell outside of it is why we got vertigo. Yeah. Because if it was something that was outside of that superhero genre, it eventually, well, it's like, well, we can take it and push it in a mature direction. And I applaud them for it because Vertigo brought us great stuff. But what it did was it took it out of the mainstream to the point that we've had, like Weird War Tales has had a couple of miniseries at Vertigo. mm -hmm. Uh, There was a fantastic Unknown Soldier series in the late 2000s by Joshua Dysart uh, that was actually set in the Uganda Huh. Uh, it ran for 25 issues. It is it is hard to read. It is it is a, it is a it earns its mature readers tag not through um, you know I mean it is violent it is gory but it's not gratuitous or um, over the top because it's very realistic in its depiction of the atrocities in the Uganda. Ha. Huh.
0: And so, so, so it's it's
2: hard. Yeah. I I mean I used to joke that I'd have to read that and then go read Tiny Titans because I couldn't read. <laughs> I had to have a break because it was so intense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've had a couple of different Sergeant Rock minis in that time frame, like you said. Uh, probably the most well-known is Sergeant Rock, The Lost Battalion by, uh, by Bill Tucci,
1: mm-hmm. where he
2: actually went and was embedded in a World War II reenactment group where he was playing the combat artist in the oh. enact- reenactment society. To tell this, which is and that's a story about the Nisei, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, rescuing the the group in in uh, in the mountains in Germany. It's based on a true story, so that it's it's kind of pushed war comics out of the mainstream and into the more mature readers' side, which allows them to do obviously more mature stories, uh, deal more with death, uh, show more of the really kind of traumatic, graphic aspects of it. But it's gotten away from being kind of mainstream entertainment. You know, now it's... Uh, even, I mean, as I said, even, even war film, you either get... Um, you know, there, there was a, a whole slew of anti, um, anti-Iraq anti films uh, during uh, the uh, you know, Bush 43's uh, administration, mm-hmm. like Green Zone and, and, you know, stuff like that. Or now you get stuff now like uh, the new Michael Bay film, 13 Hours. Yeah. You know, where it's... Yeah. They're, they're not even a genre that it's such a niche genre even in film whereas war pictures used to be a huge output up until like you said into into the late 70s so it's it's changing tastes it's uh, you know nobody wants to read about soldiers anymore because i think too many people got their kicks calling them baby killers and spitting at them when they came back off the planes from nam
0: you know to a certain extent i think this true there's also the sense that um You know, that that changed a lot of things. The fact that we went to an all volunteer army probably has something to do with that as well. Yeah. Um, And there's, and we got very, um, not that I'm going to, you know, not that I'm going to put all the blame on George Lucas, but that, and, and that Star Wars changed everything in that way. But there is something to say about that, that our tastes changed. In that we wanted more of this sort of, you know, big blockbuster sci-fi fantasy that has come, you know, and that ebbs and flows too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, by around the time, and (laughs) I'm going to be doing an episode about Apocalypse Now at some point, but um, Lucas was supposed to direct that movie and Mm -hmm. he went off to do Star Wars and, you know, War movies got more introspective in a sense or they got more individualized in that sense. And I think the um, so you didn't get the you're right. You didn't get the big the big war pictures. You got the you got the deer hunter. You got Apocalypse now, but then you got Platoon. You got Full Metal Jacket, um, which as films are well made as depictions of war is really up for debate. I've heard, yeah. I've heard both sides, and I have no, I have no personal context for it. So, I invite the discussion. Um, I think I'm trying to think of the last time, um, the last big war movies that that you can look at of, of this sort of genre, and I think you've got the two that Eastwood put out a few years ago. Yeah, Flags of Our Fathers, and. Iwo Jima, yeah, the other well, one. Iwo Jima,
2: it's something it's Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima. Yeah.
0: Um and there were a few here and those were huge. There were a few here and there, and then the I'd say the absolute biggest one from the last twenty years is probably saving private Ryan.
2: Saving Private Ryan, yeah. Yeah. Which and, but and but Private Ryan, really when you look at it is not that much different in its immediacy than a sergeant rock story. Mm-hmm. It's ordinary men pushed beyond all limits in an extraordinary situation.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, no, nobody in the company in saving private Ryan is a is a superman. There's no, you know, John Rambo with the full automatic with the <laughs> M60 like First Blood Part 2. You know. Okay. Oh, Oh, First Blood Part Two! How can you not love First Blood Part Two? But in any event, it's uh, but Private Ryan is like that. The Thin Red Line is another one. Mm -hmm. I forgot Um, that one. There was um, Bruce Willis made a couple of them in there too. Um, You know that there was, but there's like I said, it's not it's not the genre that it was. Yeah, and it's it's just it. A lot of it is, uh, like I said, I think we have more of a taste for those um, the. The, those tentpole blockbusters now
0: mm-hmm.
2: and nobody wants to make a tentpole blockbuster war movie because now you make a war movie to win Oscars.
0: Yeah, it's true.
2: You know, it's, that's, that's just the way it is. It's just like a Western, you, you know, one of my favorite Westerns that was released in my lifetime is open range because I don't think Costner was trying to win an Oscar. I think he was just trying to make a good Western, you know, compared to like unforgiven, which is like, you better give me an Oscar for this. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and just, I love Unforgiven. Oh yeah. It's when, still but... a good
0: movie. And Dances with Wolves yeah. was a good movie. I don't think Dances with Wolves has aged as well. No. Um, but at the same time, and there's I'm trying to think of, of other films. I'm glad that the, that the whole, if you were just talking war movies in general at the moment, that the genre itself has examples of both because one of my favorite War movies in quotes because there actually is very little, if any, depiction of war. Is William Wyler's *The Best Years of Our Lives*,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: was forty-six, it came out right after the exactly. war, and it's about soldiers returning home from the war. And it's it's a really good character piece, and I I'm glad we have those movies in addition to um, *Bataan* and *Tora Tora Tora*, and you know, like the the big. Um, and I'll take Tora 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 over Pearl Harbor.
2: Oh yeah, any day. Um, but but yeah. But I, I see movies like Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, the the sand pebbles, which is another. Again, That's I love the good. sand pebbles. But yeah. But they they tell about the personal impact of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best years of. I mean, that is you talk about again about a movie that is just compelling beyond belief, but at the same time heartbreaking and hard to watch. Yeah. You know. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's the, 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 the war genre in general and, and to relate this back to comics, mm-hmm. a lot of times gets dismissed as just jingoism and adventure and war is fun and rah, rah. And it's like, that's, that's especially in DC's case, that was not it. I mean, yeah, they had the, the, the kind of outlandish crazy books that were not meant to be taken seriously. Like when, when they would do war that time for God yeah. or, you know, and stuff like that. But there was a lot of these stories where they were treated, they treated their material, the subject matter with respect. And having so many creators that were veterans brought that to it. And to the point that, you know, that there's a little um, tag that finishes a lot of DC war stories, especially through the late sixties into the seventies. It's just a little white circle. It says make war no more. So that, you know, to say that, and again, it's a common criticism level, both at war comics and war film, mm-hmm. that they glorify war. To me, it, it's 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 born of uh, just not reading enough and understanding the way that they did the that genre of comics. These were stories about men that were, uh, you know, the, the courage and bravery of the soldier, but it wasn't glorifying war. They were telling you to make war no more at the end of every issue. Yeah. So... You know, it's, uh, that's, I- I'm, I'm glad that they revive them and they keep them around, even though none of them DC's modern revivals have lasted. Mm-hmm. The New 52 has had four war comics. Um, none of them lasted. Yeah. They did, two of the, the two that, la- there were two with the launch, which was Men of War, uh-huh. which was a modern military story, but the twist that it was set in the New 52 DCU. And it starred the Descendant of Sergeant Rock. Um, and the other one was Blackhawks, which was a military fantasy very much in the vein of G.I. Joe with code names and gotcha. uh, a secret gotcha. headquarters and stuff. Both of those canceled after eight issues. Mm. Then they did uh, a new G.I. Combat, which um, the lead feature was actually the War That Time Forgot. They did an un, a new unknown soldier. They did the Haunted Tank. That only lasted eight issues as well. And then the last one was Star-Spangled War Stories featuring a new character called G.I. Zombie. And I again, only that. made it eight issues before it, w- it also was ended. So, so I give him credit for trying. But mm. to me, if you're going to do a, a war comic, go all out. Don't set it in the DCU, the modern DCU. You know, set it in the, you know, if you want to set it in modern day, fine. But do it in the real world. You know, but that wasn't part of the new 52 strategy. I understand that.
0: That's my frustration with DC as well. That if it's not Vertigo or, or like one of their imprints, if it's published under the DC banner, they they feel like they have to tie it into that continuity. And for years, they they published comics that had nothing to do with their superheroes. They were the romance and the horror comics and the funny animals and stuff and it, it just it, it existed alongside of the stuff, and yeah. now, granted, you cancel it because of low sales. That's one thing. That's basic economics and publishing. But, but to just try to force it into there mm-hmm. doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And you don't want to push everything that's not mainstream onto a, 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 an imprint like Vertigo. Because um, granted Vertigo is kind of in the middle of an identity crisis right now, but Vertigo has always been much darker mm-hmm. uh, and not every war comic needs to be dark in that yeah. sense where it needs to be grabbed. I mean, Some of them can be, but like, um, I'm trying to think of what they put out recently and, and you, um, We've both read um, what is really the something that is really a definition of a graphic novel, which was that the Vietnam one that Joe Kubert did.
2: Yeah, Dong Dong Dongzoi,
0: which um, I highly recommend. It is dense, Mm -hmm. Um, not only the story, which is um, told basically in stills and through uh, dial, not even dialogue, just kind of like narration caption boxes the historical stuff in the back of the uh, the back of the book where they kind of show like the truth behind the you know the um, the operation and everything is just as dense and fascinating yeah. mm-hmm. stuff but that was a very very well done um, well done piece because of mm-hmm. the obvious research went into it and Hubert um, it was very much toward the end of his career his life yeah, uh, but yeah. no, it's, it was a, it's a gorgeous. I got it. I got it on the cheap, but it was a gorgeous, gorgeous oh, piece. Yeah.
2: And uh, uh, another, um, there was a six issue mini series that DC put out right around the time that that uh, Joe Kubert died, called Joe Kubert Presents. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of nice war stories in that, uh, dealing with. Um, I want to say it's it's one of someone he was either friends with or that he had served with, talking about life on a naval ship uh-huh. both the the mundane and the you know the uh the the seeing action and so that that was a nice uh, you know a nice little bit of something that we hadn't seen from Kubert before as well um i think Dong-Joy is a is a good example of where we kind of see a lot of the kind of high-end uh, war projects nowadays mm-hmm. i know when you talked with wayne van sant he talked about katusha
1: Yes. And that's
2: another good example. It's these OGNs, these long form stories yeah. where they have the opportunity to, you know, get more involved in the story and actually get delve into the historical aspects. I think that's more what we're seeing with a lot of this stuff. Um I mentioned Sergeant Rock the Lost Battalion, there was a an OGN that came out recently called Tet which focused obviously on the Tet offensive.
0: Yeah, I got um, um... there's a it uh, was that the ID I have it. It was done as a mini series. It was a mini and first. I the, the mini. It, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was done. It's pretty good. It, it was pretty mm-hmm. good.
2: Um, another one that uh, at Vertigo is by Tom King called Sheriff of Baghdad, which is a modern military story, but again dealing with uh, the the current situation. In, uh, in in Iraq, mm-hmm. so there there's the, the stuff is out there. It's just not it's just not in the mainstream. Yeah, and it's not always at the big press. Um, one of my probably my favorite modern war book is mm-hmm. uh, Garth Ennis's War Stories, and okay. War Stories started out at Vertigo, but now is over at Avatar. Mm-hmm. And the format of War Stories is that it's three uh, all the stories are three issues, and they're set in different theaters. Uh-huh. Even though there's there's still an emphasis on World War II, but there's angles we might not have seen before. Uh, there was a story not too long ago about Irish volunteers fighting for the Allies
1: mm. in
2: Germany, and so but then and so these guys are all Irishmen, but they get into they end up getting into a personal conflict because of the the fighting that was going on back in Ireland. Yeah, uh, who was supporting what side and all that. Um, he there's a story in there. About an Israeli tank commander during the Yom Kippur War, huh. and I don't think I'd ever seen a war comic set during the Yom Kippur <laughs> War before. So it it again it it's 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 not a uh, not an all ages book. Just going to put that out there. Uh-huh. It's a typical Garth Ennis in that <laughs> he doesn't shy away from the uh, like I said the salty language and stuff. But if you're a war comics fan, I would definitely take a look at at War Stories just a. Just a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and real quick, you mentioning G.I. Joe, I, I do want to say this. G.I. Joe is still being published. It is. Over at IDW. ID. Yeah. They put out, um, the, there's only one book right now. Oh, there is. Which okay. is I, yeah, it's G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, which is the continuation of the Marvel series. It mm-hmm. actually picked up with issue 155 and a half. And they're in the 220s now, I think. Yes. And Larry Hama has written every issue. Mm-hmm. And, it, like I said, it picks up exactly where the book left off. Yeah. So, um IDW has done some other modern, new continuity G.I. Joe stories. They, I know Chuck Dixon. Yeah,
0: Chuck it, Dixon was involved a with a lot, lot of those.
2: those. Yeah, but they currently don't have anything except a real American hero. But mm-hmm. IDW is not one to sit on their licenses.
0: So. No, And uh, I would recommend checking out, um, Tet was good. Um, I would recommend if you're interested in, in the war, uh, for the listeners out there, uh, look up Wayne Van Sant, um, who has done not just Katusha, which I've enjoyed. Uh, he's done books one and two and I met him. I was lucky enough to meet him in Baltimore last fall. And he said, book three is on the way. They're just putting the finishing touches on it. Um, but he has done a lot of books on various. Uh, I know he was he when I interviewed him. I think it's God that was back in episode fourteen of In Country or so it was. Um, he was working on one. I think about the Battle of the Bulge, and he's done mm-hmm. ones about the Red Baron, and and his artwork is always really good, and and his he has a really good sense of storytelling. Um, so I would recommend just trying those out. They are OGN, so you are going to pay a little yeah. bit more for them than you would um, fishing this. And these are war comics. Um, I will honestly say I bought the Weird war tales one about a year and a half ago uh, because I was, I just happened to be at a quarter sale and I was just flipping through them. And I yeah. have this habit at my LCS. If I find something that random and it's that cheap, like a quarter of 50 cents, I'll grab it because most of, and you probably know what I'm talking about when I say, most of the back issue bins are filled with stuff from the '90s that you know. Yes. I could take or leave. But if I come across a like something like Weird War Tales or Secret Hearts or whatever I happen to find, I, I found a Radio Shack Superman promo <laughs> comic the other day. <laughs> I'm like, it's fifty cents. How could I not? I have a Kool Aid Man comic because of that. And, and yeah, and this that's why. And so I picked up a couple of Sergeant Rocks out of the pile there too because I was just like this is something I never see. Mm-hmm. And and I do. Totally. Yeah. So... Um,
2: Unfortunately, with the war books, they had usually, by that point, had such a low pr- oh, run. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. That was the case with the NOM, too, by the way. Yeah. The last yeah, issue... Yeah, those
2: later issues of the NOM are tough.
0: That I, I think I ended up paying about 8 bucks for that last issue, which I was like, okay, because I just tried yeah. really hard.
2: Happen. Yeah. And I I do want to mention... Um, if you look if if you want to read some older war stuff besides all of the Showcase Presents that are available and let me I'm just gonna run through them real quick here. There's Showcase Presents Sergeant Rock one through four, Unknown Soldier one through two, and then one volume of Enemy Ace, War of the Time Forgot, the uh, two volumes of Haunted Tank, A Hawk, Weird War Tales, Our Army at War, which features a lot of the stories of Gravedigger, who was a uh, a uh, African-American soldier in World War II. Those are some interesting Bronze Age stuff. And then uh, Men of War. Men of War is an interesting book because it collects a lot of the one-off stories, the backups huh. from a lot of these other books get collected in that one. So they're all a little like six, six eight quick hitters. Yeah, you know? Six, eight page little ones. Marvel has a single volume of Essential Sergeant Fury, uh-huh. which is, again, a really, I mean, if you like silver, like early Silver Age Marvel, That book is a hoot. Um, EC, you can get, there's the hardcovers of Two Fisted Tales and Frontline Combat. I think there's two each on those. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was Gemstone that put those out. I'm not sure who's putting them out now. And I want to say there's a really handsome Blazing Combat hardcover out there as well. Um, uh, Commando. And I didn't talk at all about British war comics, but there's a whole history of war comics in Great Britain as well. (laughs) Commando is an extremely long-running one, and um, it, it's a classic British war comic. It's a weekly book, and so it's up in like issue like I don't know, four thousand something oh, because okay. it's weekly. It's like two thousand A.D. in that respect. Yeah. yeah but um, yeah. they're published by an outfit called DC Thompson. You can find them online, and you can you can buy them through Comicsology. Mm-hmm. So you can either get the print ones or you can get the digital ones and just read them in your on your tablet or whatever too. And they're all, I think, like 48 pages, weekly. And um, so it's just classic uh, that style. And one thing about that I'm a big fan of is public domain comics. And Charlton, Quality, and a lot of other publishers, pretty much all of their stuff from a certain era is in the public domain. And I I mentioned specifically Quality and Charlton because they were known for having war books. Yeah. So the the site I like, and this is just personal opinion, this is not an endorsement, is comicbookplus.com. They have a huge selection of these public domain books, and they have a reader, a very easy-to-use reader, so you can read right in your browser if you don't want to download the files. But for Quality, early issues of Blackhawk and GI Combat are up there. For Charlton... Charlton's main books were their fighting books which were fighting army, fighting navy, fighting air force and fighting marines. Mm-hmm. But they had a lot of different war books over the years, so if you want to check out some some old uh, old school war stuff uh, on the cheap, I would recommend taking a look at some of those public domain books which are uh they're 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 not the the Charlton books are not up to the quality of the DC stuff, but some of that early quality book stuff is really is really worth checking out.
0: Yeah. Um, and I actually like, i've I, i've used comicbookplus dot com myself uh, for this very podcast because there's a few early DC books we're talking like new fun <laughs> like that early yeah. in the public domain as well. Not very many though because I think DC is able to hold on to most of their copyright. But um, but yeah that that is and it's not a total endorsement. But you're right, it, it's a really good site for um for finance and there's some really weird stuff on that site too if you're oh yeah if you feel like kind of diving and it's free so <laughs> that's cool
2: There i forget if it was centaur or one of these small publishers put out a book called like atomic age war and it was <laughs> it was this science fiction series about the the russians bombing us with like a cobalt bomb and then oh, wow. it, it's but it. And and it's just back and forth us dropping bombs on each other, and then our soldiers are carrying like guns that shoot nuclear rockets. And it's like I'm gonna have to go look. (laughs) Oh my god! I'm reading this, and it's like it's like at the time this was like this is the future. It's like can you imagine if we were this much fallout? we would just be a smoking husk. That'd be all oh, that. would be
0: <laughs> Just, it's just like, here's the podcast, the future podcast episode of bat guano, crazy comics. Like just,
2: yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs>
0: uh, well, thank you for coming on. This was, this was a blast. Um, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> tell everybody where, uh, where they can find you, please.
2: This was blazing battle action. That was the one. DC <laughs> piece of plot. Was blazing. Um, you can find me uh, over at the Two True Freaks Network. My show is Earth Destruction Directive, which is a show that talks about Japanese giant monsters. Be they mind, be they on film or television or comics, this is monsters like Godzilla, King Ghidorah, Gamera, Mothra, Ultraman.
1: This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails, and could at any time
2: lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaichu? monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yungari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at two true Earth Destruction Directive where we turn your kaiju dreams into city smashing reality. I'm also one of the co-hosts on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror tales.terror, Tales of Terror, which can also be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. This is a horror movie podcast, and we, um, um, you know, unfortunately, we lost one of our hosts this past year. Uh, Mr. Sean Engel was one of our hosts and uh, sadly passed away, but uh, but the show will go on uh, in his honor. Uh, so you can check me out there. I also have a uh, very rarely updated Hawkman blog, uh, Being Carter Hall, which is at BeingCarterHall.com. Dot blogspot.com and uh you can check me out on Facebook if you want earth destruction directive is the name. So uh but yes, thank you very much for having me. that This has been a lot of fun because it's given me an excuse to kind of break out and read some more sergeant rocks and weird war tales and stuff. Nice. uh, uh I actually uh I did not have issue 100. I found a digital copy of it, but then I went on eBay and bought a lot uh-huh. of like yeah. More new issues of Weird War Tales, so I got them stacked up to read. I'm very excited. Very cool. I read um, issue number uh, 113 uh, today on my lunch break and the cover has the GI robot fighting a robot samurai.
0: Because why not?
2: Yes. <laughs> and it says Jake point two makes his dynamic debut against a samurai robot and you see him he's got his head on a cord and he's whipping it around like a Like a footman's flail to hit the samurai. And it says, and he's really using his head.
0: Oh my god. (laughs) It's fun. So um, I will be back in a few weeks with the second to last episode of this show. And the last non-superhero genre that I'm going to cover. And that will be westerns. So until then... Uh Take care, and thanks for listening.
1: When the Yanks go marching in, I want to be their boy. Spread some joy when they take over in. And may I join you? will be a hot time in the town of Berlin when the Brooklyn boys begin. To take the joint apart and tear it down when they take over
0: Thank you for listening to Eighty Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at PopcultureAffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening, and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics.
1: When they take Berlin, the Yanks go marching in. will be a hot time in the town of Berlin. When the Brooklyn boys begin, the boys begin to take the joint apart and tear it down well. They take Berlin There'll be a hot time In the town of Berlin When the Yanks go marching in You could never keep them Happy down on the fire The life of these would never please they shudder with alarm No, you couldn't keep them Happy down on the fire After they take Berlin